0: I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Russian winter played backdrop to one of the most dramatic, interesting, and elusive battles that I've come across. The Battle of Lake Pepus, the Battle of Chud, the Battle of Lake Chud, the Battle on the Ice, as it's alternately known, was a battle that saw the end of Teutonic expansion into Russia, into the East. It saw the rise of Alexander Nevsky and his establishment as one of the great Russian heroes in history. And it also is a complete mystery. Uh, It seems like if you were to go to the sources, uh, most of what we know is probably just a wild embellishment, um, uh, a medieval form of fan fiction, where the, the people writing the chronicles or the histories of the time thought about what they wanted it to look like and probably not what the battle looked like at all. Uh, What I've heard or what I've read and seen is a battle that's incredibly uh, titanic and dramatic. It's a clash between heavily armed and armored Teutonic knights charging across a field of snow and ice to be met by the, the, the militia of Novgorod and the horse archers of Alexander Nevsky's flanks and the fighting that takes place on the lake results in most of the Teutonic Knights crashing through the ice as it shatters and breaks beneath them, their armor working as anchors to drag the, drag them to the dark bottom of the lake, uh, killing many of them, drowning them in their fighting kit. Well, it seems as though that's unlikely to have happened, for a number of reasons. First off, the lake is fairly shallow, and we'll get into that later, but... Uh, if you go back and, and look at it, it looks like the Battle of Lake Pepys, the Battle on the Ice, is a battle that is a couple hundred years in the making. It's something where the, uh, it's it's one of those battles where the literary embellishment and flightful fancies of the chroniclers just kind of builds this event into something quite quite a bit different than what it probably actually was. Uh, the famous Battle on the Ice Really, the first reference of ice uh, is is a couple hundred years down the line. Actually, the first reference to the battle says that it took place on grass. Uh, It's not a couple hundred years later uh, when you get your first mention of ice. And then around 1500 AD, it is the first reference to the Germans crashing through or fleeing the ice. Uh, that, to me, tells you that much of what we know of having happened is is brought to you by uh, the imagination of of many a historian who wanted to make Alexander Nevsky seem really, really uh, interesting and to give him kind of an epic uh, character buildup. Uh, it also probably wanted to make the battle seem more important and more dramatic than it was. Uh, and in reality it was probably a fairly small local clash in which the Russians highly outnumbered the Germans and were able to send them packing with relative ease. But in order to get a better picture of the Battle of Lake Pepus uh, I think it's important for us to kind of give it context in terms of the time period in which it happened. So I'm gonna hit you with some information about the Crusades in the Baltic region. Uh, some we're going to go over a couple of different things about warrior uh, military monk orders and the rise of the Teutonic Knights. We'll talk some of the Baltics, some of Novgorod, some of Andrew Nevsky. And in fact, we'll eventually get all the way to the battle, like we always do, and we'll break that down punch by punch. And then I kind of want to go over a little bit of the legacy of the Battle of of Lake Peppers, uh, because it has some really interesting long-term effects and implications that, in a weird way, the battle wasn't very important in the time period it was fought, or at least it wasn't one of the titanic uh, clashes of the moment like, uh, like Lignitz uh, the year before, but it does have some interesting long-term effects. In fact, its uh, pop culture influence probably is something that you have either watched within the last couple of years or you've seen almost every year for the last 40 years. So once we get there, I'll let you know. But first off, let's talk about the Catholic Church and the age of the Crusades. The popes had for generations considered it their their holy duty, their holy obligation to get the world to abide by and to follow the Latin Creed. By the 1200s, uh, looking around the map of Europe, the Pope was seeing more and more already formed and, and kind of fledgling nation states and kingdoms, and his ability to create what he called or would have called a church state, which was a state solely governed by bishops and papal legates, was dwindling, except for this one kind of uh, a last bastion, this little outpost of paganism up in the Baltic region and it really was it was a stronghold that was uh, the last in europe the last place in europe where you had whole uh, tribes and kingdoms of pure pagans and they were they were shamanistic pagans uh, and they they were pretty much deemed to be the devil by both the catholics and the orthodox uh, churches uh, a northern catholic state would defend also the flank of the The Western European world so you have most of Europe at this point is staunchly Catholic and the Mongols are on the rampage, a strong northern Catholic state up there might work as a bulwark, uh, might work as a a defensive formation against Mongols attacking and swooping down from the northeast into Central Europe and in the end the Pope would have thought about maybe using the Eastern states as recruiting grounds to pull men into the fight against the Muslims and the Crusades in Outrimmer uh, and in the Middle East. To help him create this northern Catholic state, the Pope would have reached out to Scandinavian and German kingdoms in the area who were also on the move. And these Scandinavian and Germans wanted to create more trade networks, and they would have been eyeing the the trade hub and the resources of Novgorod with uh, with pretty envious green eyes, I would assume. So the, the, the two sides make pretty perfect partners here. Pope Innocent III calls for a small-scale Baltic crusade basically to defend and uh, to protect the new vulnerable Church of Livonia. The initial target of this crusade was to take on the natural and traditional enemies of the Livonians, uh, which was targeting the uh, Bolts and the Finns in the region. So it wasn't even really Russia that was on the Pope's uh, objective list in the, in the beginning here. And it was it was meant to be no more than a secondary front from the Middle East. So remember, the Pope's not re- necessarily he's not pulling uh, Knights Templar and Hospitallers, and he's not pouring resources into this Baltic uh, this Baltic Crusade at the same level that he's pouring into the Middle East. And the Pope wasn't going to send these uh, military religious orders to the baltic region because they were becoming quickly uh, fundamental to the very survival of outrimmer the knights hospitaller the knights templar and the teutonic knights were all bedrocks of the latin east and the survival of outrimmer really relied on them and their their military prowess and their ability to recruit uh, the Knights Templar is famous for or infamous, and was the the group with the white background and the red cross. The Hospitaller were the black background and the white cross, and the Teutonic Knights were iconic for having the white background with the black cross. So just keep that image in your head as we go forward here. Each one of these, the military orders, the Templar, Hospitaller, and Teutonic Knights. They all were basically quasi-independent entities. They're not really having to abide uh, local church decrees or any political jurisdiction locally in Outrimmer. And they really didn't have to listen or follow any uh, local laws or rules outside of papal decrees. Um, They were directly subordinate to the Pope, and that gave them a little bit of of autonomy. It gave them uh, the freedom to kind of evolve and and develop in their own way and by their own uh, direction, which is really rare at this time period. And it leads to some really interesting developments. And, as the popularity for the Crusades and these orders grew, they were able to recruit really, really successfully, supplying Outrimmer with huge, huge amounts of its manpower, and and, in fact, so much eventually that Outrimmer was really reliant on the religious orders to supply it with uh, with soldiers with manpower. And along with their ability to supply Outrimmer with military men and material, the religious orders also rapidly became the bankers, bankrolling, the entire late crusades, the entire Outrimmer kingdoms. And this is interesting. What you have is this the first truly developed secure financial system in Europe at this point. Uh, the the bankers of Europe are essentially born via the Crusades. And it's by the late 12th century that you have this really elaborate system building up where it was possible for you to uh, deposit a certain amount of money. Say you're going on crusade, you're a French prince or French lord, you want to go on crusade. You can deposit a certain amount of money in Toulon and that gets you a credit note, essentially the first true check of its time. And when you get to Acre or uh, Tyre or Jerusalem or wherever you're headed in the, in the Middle East, in the Holy Lands, you take one of these checks or these, these credit notes to a, uh, one of the military orders and they will be able to give you cash in return. Um, and that system is one that would eventually vol- evolve into modern banking as we know it because they were dealing with such huge sums of money and they were kind of hoarding vast sums, the military orders also became prodigious builders. But they were building a very specific type of building. It wasn't just churches and monasteries and cathedrals. They became the most prolific builders of castles of their time. And some of these castles are the... Uh, the quintessential crusader castle like uh, Crac de chevalier a uh, montfort these are the castles that if you imagine a, cas- a castle in your head or you- you're trying to place a castle in a fairy tale this is what you're thinking of at first the religious orders weren't just building their own they were finding Older castles, and they were modifying, updating, or extending existing uh, defenses. But as they got better and better and more and more familiar with the process of building a castle and how to do it correctly and how to do it most effectively, where to put them most effectively, then they started to build their own. Some of the most advanced fortifications of the medieval period and we're talking uh, real, real developments in in fortifications, such as sloping walls, rounded towers, uh, impressive. St- Stone cutting techniques so impressive that some of the stones at Montfort and at Crack de Chevalier uh, they almost appear to magically meet up and and make one stone but you know there's a crack but there's just not enough space to put even a piece of paper uh, you also have massive storage spaces because of new techni- techniques in vaulting uh, so the ceilings are, are vaulted really well and it creates these massive storage uh, spaces and stables so that Castles were really effective as defensive uh, positions along borders because now when the enemy army swarms around your castle, you can hold enough men, food, and horses on the inside to deal a a very powerful counter-strike, and that hadn't been the case for a very long time. So as you can imagine, you have this interesting kind of development arising where you have these these three militarized monk orders that are armies without nations. They're, they're beholding to no country. They're kind of their own entity. And they are also becoming rapidly some of the most efficient and effective armies and militarized uh, groups in the world. Uh, They are incredible castle builders, incredible recruiters, and they are backed and bankrolled by their own financial system, which is blossoming into one of the most, you know, successful in the world. Uh, So it's not surprising that they would kind of want to create their own little nations and, and go on to create their own little autonomous states where they have uh, the ability to determine their own destiny and, and decide how and when and where they're going to uh, fight wars or what they're going to do with themselves. So the Teutonic Knight uh, group is one of the three big hitters there. It was founded during the Third Crusade uh, by the Order of the Hospital of St. Mary of the Germans of Jerusalem. Uh, hell of a name, but thankfully it was shortened to Teutonic. Uh, and in that, that was back in 1189, 1190. Uh, German crusaders set up a field hospital outside the, the siege of Acre in 1190, and that's where you start to see uh, the rise of the Teutonic Knights. In 1199, Pope Innocent III confirms them as a knightly order, so they get the sanction from the Holy See to be considered amongst the Templars and the Hospitlers as officially catholic ordained uh, monk knightly orders they set up a small independent state in prussia and in latvia in the 13th century they they go on to build a little uh, state there Uh, they would go on way down the line they get very close to the hohenstaufen dynasty of germany Uh, the templars take on that white background with the black cross that it really is iconic now, especially if you imagine the the kind of bucket uh, helm, the great helm uh, that you, you might have uh, just kind of matriculating in your mind as you picture a Teutonic knight. Uh, their most mighty fort was the the fortress of Montfort uh, near the city of Acre, and this is really, it was designed and built by them from scratch, and it's considered one of the most complete one of the the greatest and most uh, perfectly designed and built forts of the crusading age. It used uh, used all the, the modern techniques and utilized all the advances of the age. Uh, the massive commitments that they had in the Baltics eventually led to a drain on their overall ability to help in the Middle East with the major thrust of that crusade, uh, and eventually that actually goes a uh, far way down the line, but it does go towards the eventual weakening of the European states in Outrimmer and the collapse of Outrimmer as a functioning uh, functioning state as a whole. Uh, the Teutons, uh, Teutonic Knights tried in the early part of the 1200s to carve out their own small autonomous kingdom while protecting eastern Hungary, but they were eventually thrown out by the Hungarians, uh, and then that forced them up into the the area now known as uh, as as Prussia. That's where they cre- they eventually do create their own little kingdom. And this goes on to be one of the most long lasting, influential things that the Teutonic Knights do, all the way down to the nineteenth century. You have German imperial ideology, really heavily influenced by their Their roots with the Teutonic Knights and Prussia, and right up until the the reign of Hitler and the Nazis, a lot of Nazi thinking and doctrine ideology is again heavily heavily influenced uh, and romanticized by their association with the the religious order of the Teutonic Knights. in fact, one of the sources I am using uh, david nicole's uh, lake Pepus twelve forty two He has a quote in here that summarizes that relationship. In the Second World War, a Nazi historian took these uh, unpleasant parallels still further, saying, quote, This was the hour of the birth of a new Germany. The Teutonic Order engaged in establishing in the Prussian country an independent state, became the interpreter of the national will, expressed in a powerful longing for more eastern territory, and gave this struggle against the heathen a direction corresponding to national interests end quote, and you can see right there exactly how uh, Hitler and Goebbels and Heinrich Himmler would very quickly grab onto the Teutonic order uh, and use that symbolism and that history to propagate their own little uh, their own belief system. So the creation of this Little autonomous kingdom by the Teutonic Knights in Prussia puts them and the Catholic Church in direct contact with the weird state of the Baltic region. Uh, this, this is a bizarre place at this time in history because it's a kind of it's a nexus. It's the old and the new. It's it's paganism and Christianity. Um, and you have east and west all kind of battling it out, not to mention you have north and south. You've got Europeans and and northerners and Scandinavians and all sorts of different groups of people vying for control of this area. The region uh, of the Baltics runs from Prussia at the base all the way up through modern-day Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, um, all the way up into Finland. And during the time period that we're talking about, you would have had Prussians, Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, Danes, Swedes, Finns, and an assortment of, of little uh, pagan tribes and groups and, and almost forgotten the history people um, all kind of populating this area. And, and by no means was this a peaceful area when the Teutonic Knights started to arrive. Uh, it, there were lots of little border wars and and clashes for influence and to extend power uh, was regularly occurring, and there was constant raiding uh, of group against group to procure prisoners that would have eventually either worked the fields of those particular people or been for sale down the rivers to Byzantium or there would have been a search for booty and prestige. And, and really what it stems out from is, is a lot of these groups are looking to just try and get their men as much combat experience as possible. Uh, so by having raids in force and then being able to flee really quickly before the, the victim of the raid is able to counter strike, um, you, you get your men experience, but you suffer as minimal amount of losses as possible. What's really interesting here is that they also weren't, uh, it's not clear, but it seems as though these, these raids between Baltic groups had no interest in taking land or forcing the, uh, the victim of the raid to pay tribute long term. It really does seem that they were just kind of exploratory raids meant to uh, capture as much wealth and booty and experience and prestige as possible and then get the hell out of Dodge. As the last home of Europe's pagan communities, the Baltic states were kind of backwaters by the standards of the day. Uh, They practiced a very sophisticated type of highly developed shamanism, but it wasn't by any means a a highly developed or modern uh, state at the time. You didn't have much in the way of of roads or infrastructure, what little there was, was probably in uh, disrepair or in fairly ill use. These communities, these groups were, they were living the old way. They were living the the way that generations of Baltic families and communities had lived for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they probably saw... Uh, changing as, as as dangerous and uh, unnecessary. And as Christianity comes into the picture and decides that their way of life is, uh, is no longer appropriate, uh, these Baltic regions remain very hostile and remain very violent. Um, and so what ends up happening is uh, you have the papal legate William of Modena uh, and he's been tasked with building a uh, a Baltic crusade. So he goes to the region and begins building a Western coalition to take on the Baltic states. Uh, he uses his connections with Denmark and Sweden uh, to try and advance eastwards. Uh, he really wants to remember the Kingdom of Livonia, or the, the bishopric of Livonia, he wants to protect that because it's it's the foothold of the Catholic Church in the region. Uh, he really goes hard at pulling as many uh, recruits together as possible. Uh, he has the sanction of the Pope to create this crusade, um, and he's drawing on all of the, uh, the ability that the Catholic church has to pull in people for the fighting. And he also has a little bit of financial backing from this, which is, is hugely important at the, by the time of 1240, William of Modena believes that his job is done, that he's really set the crusade up for success. So he leaves uh, Italy and heads the uh, heads back for home. As part of the coalition, Meant to make the Baltics Christian or Catholic, and as part of the fighting body of men that are intending to carry this crusade out, there's a group called the Brothers of the Sword or the Brotherhood of the Sword. Uh, Their Bishop Albert von Buxhovid. And the Bishop of Estonia formed the Sword Brethren to kind of extend and defend Christian Livonia. It's a it's a bit of a backwater religious military order, kind of like a second or junior group to the others, not truly as advanced or not nearly as popular or well known as the Teutonic Knights. At the Battle of the Solit River, uh, the the Brotherhood of the sword is crushed, their grandmaster is killed, and the numbers uh, that are surviving are left to kind of be absorbed into the Teutonic Knight order. Uh, this is important because it's, it's Bishop Albert von Buxovid who is the Bishop of Tartu. Uh, so if I reference Bishop of Tartu, that's who I'm talking about. He goes on to be w- the most likely leader of the crusading forces at the Battle of Pepus or the Battle of the Ice. Russia at this point is not the target of this crusade. Again, it's the Baltic area that the the church and the Teutonic Knights are at early stages trying to clamp down on and control. And that's probably because Russia is kind of still... A somewhat mystery to most of the Western Europeans and and especially to the church itself, because Russia is uh, it's an orthodox state and it's off far, far away. Uh, the Russia that is uh, in existence at this point is deeply influenced by both the Eastern nomads and the Northern European Viking settlers that have come into, uh, into the main portions of the land here. You've got a lot of slobs as well, uh, and they influence architecture, arms, armor, art, all of the kind of quintessential uh, Russian things that you can think of from the... the uh, medieval period, a lot of Eastern and Scandinavian influence. Uh, and that's because Vikings would have used the the massive Ru- uh, Russian rivers as highways for trade. Uh, they would have plied the rivers, both trading and warring and setting up ports all along the way. Uh, Kiev was the leading city for quite some time, and, and even at the time of the Battle of Lake Pepys, uh, Kiev is still considered the the most prominent principality, most important city, but it's waning in power. Um, one of the reasons it's still considered as powerful as it is, is it's the home of the Knez or the Volekinezh, uh, and that's essentially the Grand Prince of Russia. Russia, at this point in time, is made up of a group of little city-states, and they're all loosely bound by culture and, and military and trading ties, but they are also fairly regularly going to fight each other and try and get the best of each other. It's a very strange time in Russian history, somewhat similar to Italian, uh, the the age of Italian duchies and, and principalities and whatnot, or uh, ancient Greece where you had your policies. And even though Russia had a large population, it was very thinly and sparsely spread out spread out amongst the ten major principalities, each one taking on the name of the great city that uh, was supposed to be ruled by a Rurik descendant. Uh, Rurik was one of the founders of medieval Russia, but that's not always the case, as we'll see with Novgorod. Uh, It was a very disorganized, very decentralized, ripe for the conquering time in Russian history, And by the late 1230s, the Mongols come to do exactly that. Uh, We'll get into that later on. But just imagine, uh, you know, Italy at its, you know, Renaissance Italy, where you have a bunch of vying for dominance, some larger uh, and more capable military states and some smaller but extremely wealthy states and just kind of a hodgepodge of various cities, each one having their own identity not quite united. Amongst these principalities and these powerful cities is one major trading power in the north. Uh, There's a proverb, a Russian proverb, that goes, quote, Who can stand against God and the great Novgorod? End quote. Novgorod is so powerful at this time that it's known as the Lord Novgorod the Great. Uh, It's a dominant northern Russian city. It's on the edge of the coniferous zone uh, and it's surrounded by swamps. So you wouldn't think it's uh, its not a natural uh, hotspot to put a city because of, there's so little ar- uh, agricultural territory. There's so little farmable land, arable land for farming that uh, you wouldn't naturally think it's a spot to put a city that's going to grow and blossom. But the... Different trade avenues that Novgorod has kind of uh, the monopoly on make it this really, really important hub of trade. Uh, You've got the Volkov River that leads to Lake Latiga, and from there, uh, as well as the Neva that all access the Gulf of Finland. And you've got the Dnieper River, which goes to Kiev and Byzantium, and the Volga River that works its way to and through Central Asia. All of these create this huge, vast trading network that allows Novgorod to be kind of the, the hub of northeastern uh, uh, Russia, uh, and it soon even has a, a direct control over uh, the Ural Mountains, uh, and they eventually get some, some control over parts of Siberia or modern-day Siberia, which they call the, the land of, of midnight, and this all creates a very, very wealthy city. A, a town that is extremely wealthy because of its trade in furs, walrus ivory, and dried fish, among other things. Uh, it, it also has a huge foreign merchant community on the uh, east bank of the city as well as a large fortress on the west bank, which would eventually be destroyed by the Nazis. But, uh, but all told, this creates this this massive, uh, powerful, powerful, not quite self-sufficient city because they're still relying on trade to uh, give them the money to eventually go out and buy food. But they have the buying or purchasing power that a lot of other Russian cities would uh, would crave. So, Lord Novgorod the Great isn't exactly uh, uniquely powerful, but it's up there with some of the most powerful cities in all of Russia at this point. And like most Russian cities, it observes Orthodox Christianity, uh, and it uniquely seems to have been a kind of uh, semi-republic. Uh, or or at least its governing body, or vechi, is a city council. So they didn't have what most principalities in Russia at this point did have, which was a ruling nez or Knez, uh and that would have been a prince whose job is to act as not quite a king, but something between a king and a president or a prime minister. Uh, the the city of Novgorod the Great did not have that. They had a ruling city council or vechi, uh, but they would on occasion request help from a nez. They would seek to uh, to find a leader outside of the city council in times of strife or when under attack, and eventually they would stumble upon one uh, very special young man, Alexander Yaroslavich would eventually be known as a competent military commander, if not necessarily one of the great commanders in history, at least a very um, effective one. He is far more well-known for being a visionary and a very deft political maneuverer. He's born in 1220 and spends his youth in southern Russia, where his father is kind of the... The leader of this clan, uh, eight warlike brothers he grows up with, and Alexander also has five cousins who are also warlike. All of these Yarsilovich's would go on to rule in some form or fashion, uh, and most of them would rule some of the, the more powerful Russian principalities and cities. In 1236, Yarsilevich becomes the eldest of the sons of uh, his father and is placed by his father as the Nez of Novgorod. In 1239, he marries a rather important family in another principality, further strengthening his political position. And eventually he gets caught between Catholic intolerance and pagan ferocity. Uh, It's a choice ...to fight one and submit to the other, and he wisely chooses to submit. In 1237-1238, the Mongols come to Novgorod. They use the winter time, which freezes over the rivers and lakes, to create highways through Russia. They come to Novgorod and stop within miles of the city, and then eventually turn around... ...because the nez of that city, Alexander Yaroslavich, has submitted, he's bent the knee... Uh, and this is really important because this, again, shows his, his acumen as a politician. He understands that the Mongols are most likely going to destroy if he doesn't submit. And he wants to play ball because if there's any kind of stoppage in trade, then the city lacks the funds to buy the food. As soon as the city starts to starve, it starts to die. So it's much more preferable for him to uh, play ball with the Mongols. And the thing that he uh, must have seen as an opportunity uh, to to further protect his city was that the Mongols had a attitude of religious toleration that the Catholics did not., uh, the Catholic Church was much more willing to persecute. In fact, it was part of their their whole belief st- system um, to persecute and convert. Uh, the Orthodox Christians to the Catholic way, uh, whereas the Mongols really didn't give a, they didn't care. Unless you, as long as you paid your taxes, the Mongols weren't going to come to you about any kind of religious thing, or at least not at this point. Maybe later in Mongol um, control, it would be a thing. But uh, early on, they they were very tolerant of religious beliefs. In uh, 1240... Alexander is called by the city of Novgorod to go and and fight an invasion force coming out of the north by the Swedes. And at the Battle of the River Neva, he wins a, a very striking little engagement and is bestowed with the name Nevsky. So from here on out and forever on, Alexander Yarsilovich is known as Alexander Nevsky. So after the Swedes are dealt a crushing defeat by Nevsky on the River Neva, the second wave of Crusaders starts to head towards Novgorod's western border. It seems as though, of course we're not exactly sure why the Crusaders switched their target from the Baltic region to Novgorod. Uh, It seems likely that what they eventually realized is that Uh, This major hub, this city, this powerful city to their east would be a much more powerful position to operate from than any of the kind of smaller disconnected um, cities in the Baltic region. Uh, It also seems likely that they were trying to protect as much as possible their eastern uh, frontiers, and then they maybe were just afraid that Novgorod was growing too powerful It's also possible some sources kind of allude to the idea that Alexander was raiding, robbing, and burning into Teutonic territory, which would have forced their hand. Um, But anyhow, no matter what happened, the Swedes were beaten at the Neva River, and then the second army of the Crusaders, consisting of the remnants of the Sword Brother religious order, uh, some Danes, the Bishop Dorpat, uh, a Russian contingent, so some, some tribes of Russian, um, of Russian men, and some Teutonic, very small, or a small number of Teutonic knights. And these, this group moves east into Novgorod in territory. Um, they're successful at capturing the citadel of Iceborg in fall of 1240. Uh, they beat back a relief army sent on them by the city of, of Skov. And Skov is a really important little city south and west of Novgorod. The reason Skov is really important is, first off, it's kind of um, it is uh, dominated by Novgorodian culture, um, but it's also got really great agricultural land around it. So a lot of the food that Novgorod relies on to feed its people is bought and paid for in in Skov. And the relationship is a little turbulent. It's not uh, not a true love uh, relationship. Skov feels as though it's forced to accept whatever Novgorod puts for pricing. Um, It's also kind of, you know, it raises its hackles under the idea that it's this little brother city of the great Novgorod. Um, It's in fact known as younger brother to a lot of the Novgorodians it's a it's it's either going to be a hugely important part of the crusaders advance towards novgorod or it's going to be a hugely important part of nevsky's attack into the uh, crusaders advance as the crusading army advances on skov they are able to kind of do whatever they want eventually they there's a small battle outside of skov Um, And the crusaders win and take the city, eventually moving even further uh, east past the city of Skov and continue raiding to within 20 miles of Novgorod itself. And the victory uh, coalition is so confident of themselves that they send a messenger to Rome asking the pope for permission to rule all of Russia. And Novgorod has, for some reason we're not sure why, has kicked Nevsky out of the city, and at this point they call upon him to come back and help them out. His job, they if you know, if he chooses to accept, which he does, is to come back, capture Skolv, capture Iceborg, capture all the territory taken away by the Crusaders, and at all costs protect Novgorod the Great. Over the span of 1241, 1242. Nevsky goes about accomplishing the retaking of the lost territories of Novgorod. Uh, eventually he gets to the point where he's able to retake Skov in, in March of 1242 and as a uh, attempt to kind of reestablish the power structure here, reestablish the borders, Nevsky sends a good amount of his forces deep into uh, the crusading army's territory to raid and burn and slash and kill. Uh, hopefully the, the resulting effect would be to keep the crusaders in their own lands and not coming back anytime soon to the lands of Novgorod. At Moost Bridge, only a few days before the Battle of Lake Pepys, uh one of these raiding groups is caught and ambushed at a bridge by crusader forces and they destroy the raiding party of the russians one of the leaders of it Domash uh, Verdislavich, is the commander of novgorod's militia and he apparently dies in this encounter it what it ends up doing is it's it's kind of one of those tricky little moments where It's not really a huge engagement, but it leads to the battle to come because what ends up happening here is Nevsky turns around to head home. He thinks that they've put enough of a scare into the Crusaders to keep them from coming back. In fact, Moost Bridge has the opposite effect because uh, the Bishop Dorpat believes that the Russians are beaten, that this little engagement at Moost has you know put them to flight and that Nevsky is turning to run away and so he is on in hot pursuit on the heels of Nevsky's army in the process of following them it takes them over the uh, the region of Lake Peipus or Chud which is on the border between the modern countries of Estonia and Russia the shoreline of the lake the shoreline of the lake is very, very flat, and it's surrounded by extensive reed beds. So you've got a, almost like a perfect battlefield on the side of a lake or on the banks of a lake. Not really steep, so you could get some cavalry charges in there, um, and it would be a good opportunity for infantry to form up and, and maneuver. Uh, The two lakes uh, of Lake Pepys, one's in the north and one's in the south. One is Lake Pepys, one is Lake Skov, and they're linked by Ozero or uh, Warm Lake, this smaller little kind of almost, uh, you know, triangular-shaped connecting lake that's in between the two larger bodies of water. The thing to keep in mind, and one of the reasons why this battle is particularly interesting, is that the lake is incredibly shallow. Uh, in some places, it's, it's only about 12 inches deep. Uh, especially at winter time, it would have been even more shallow. Uh, if any knights did drown at this battle or fall through the, the ice, they likely died more of a uh, result of the weight of their armor or being trampled by men uh, than they did sinking to the bottom of a deep, dark lake. The Battle of Lake Pepys happens on April 5th 1242 uh, we're a little unsure on the numbers exactly for both sides but Nevsky's Russians appear to have been somewhere between 5,000 and 6, 000. uh he would have had Novgorod Polk infantry and militia he would have also had and this is an important part of his army one to remember he would have had Turkuk or Turkic Mongol steppe warriors or turco mongol steppe warriors this might have been Kipchaks or one of the other uh, raiding steppe riding uh, horse archer uh, her- groups and he would have brought them in and and been they would have been hired by Novgorod not only to work as elite horse archers and auxiliaries but also as herdsmen for the vast hordes of horses that were needed for the other key element of Novgorod and Nevsky's army, which was his druzinas, and the druzinas are kind of a uh, like a, a aristocratic military group who swear oath uh, an oath of fealty and loyalty to the the prince, and they're kind of a combination heavy cavalry. Um, they also, in some cases, would have had some bows, but. They are his strike force, his elite force. Uh, If anybody's fighting the Teutonic knights in a head-to-head clash, it's probably going to be Alexander's, uh, his uh, Druzina. Against Alexander in this kind of hodgepodge army is Bishop Hermann von Boxhovid of Tartu, like we said earlier. Um, And he is going to command somewhere around uh, 1,000 to 2,000 Crusaders, so a much smaller Army and one that's made up of a bunch of different units. So we're not exactly sure who was in command, but it seems like it was probably the Bishop of Tartu. The Bishop had his Estonian levies, which were very weak and not very motivated um, to fight. And they were joined by a bunch of Westerners, which were generally much more uh, well-armed and trained and armored, and also better fed and treated treated in general. Uh, and that would have been a bunch of different, you know, he would have had Danes and other Baltic region forces, um, probably some Swedes in there. And then the core of his striking force would have been his Teutonic knights and the men-at-arms. Uh, these would have been heavily mailed, reinforced with plate armor. Um, they would have been mounted on their large uh, destrier, you know, war horse Uh, Each one of these knights and men-at-arms would have far outweighed their opponents and been kind of like a self-contained tank unto itself. Um, And they preferred to strike heavy, strike fast, and strike hard, which is what the bishop is, uh, his plan, his goal is here. Uh, Whether or not he's able to carry it out is more, I think, in my opinion, a matter of... um, of numbers, more than it is anything else. but it also appears that Nevsky puts his forces together and sets them up in a very strong position. Uh, and that also plays a, a fairly large role in what's uh, what's to come. So Russian tactics, keep in mind, have evolved very, very um, consistently, from constant step harassment, and you blend that with just regular uh, uh, harassment and attacks from Scandinavian forces, and over time, what's created is this very interesting combination of of extreme offensive action, uh, while also finding... Uh, a secure natural defensive position or spot to hold. And this, this, this works in concert. So you find this really strong, uh, you know, position to locate your infantry and use some kind of natural uh, phenomena to protect them. And then as soon as possible, you launch a all encompassing attack with your Drusina and auxiliary cavalry, Time and time again, you see this in Russian medieval history. And again, uh, Nevsky uses it here. The thing to keep in mind is that Lake Pepys has these prevailing winds that come in from the west, and they create a, a... A lot of frost heaves, so the constant freezing, thawing, and then freezing again of the lake's surface builds up ice that kind of move like tectonic plates. And they they press against each other, and they spurt up, and then they freeze, and they create these little icebergs. Nevsky is, as he's marching back towards Novgorod after the Moost raiding party fiasco... He realizes that he's got the, the Germans and the Crusaders on his heels. He wants to stop, find a defensive position, and then uh, take them on. He knows he's got a larger army. He wants to see what he can do with it. Maybe he can end this whole thing right here. He heads for Raven's Rock Island, a, a, a promontory near the middle of the, uh, of the Two Lakes, and he wants to set up a position behind the Frost Heaves. He uses these to help uh, create that op- defensive obstacle for his men, and he deploys his infantry behind it. This will eventually force the Germans to either have to go around these frost heaves uh, or climb them or weave in and out of them and through them. The thing that is important to remember here is that that will instantly negate the, the uh the weight and the strength of the German crusaders, the Teutonic Knights, because their whole, uh, their whole fighting capability is based on cohesion and, and mass. And if they can't be cohesive and work together and they can't bring that mass and that weight to bear on the enemy at the right time in the right place, then they will be very ineffective at, uh, at attacking a more numerous enemy. So it's a very well-chosen site for defensive action. Nevsky knows his business. He knows what he's doing. He's placed his infantry with spears, bows, and axes in the center of his line. So hopefully the enemy has to go through all these um, obstacles, tires itself out, and then he can pick off those stragglers with, uh, with bows, and then they'll fall upon the axes, swords, and spears of his infantry after being exhausted trying to get through all of the frost heaves. And on his wings, on either side of Nevsky's line, he's got his light cavalry and his mounted archers, whether those be the Kipchaks or Cumans or whatever turco uh, mongol forces he had there. And the reason that he keeps them on his wings will become apparent, but it's basically he's he's keeping in mind that he wants to eventually... Um, swarm and surround, so almost like a, a Hannibal-type uh, encirclement battle. He wants to keep those those side forces ready to move forward and then get into the rear and sides of the enemy. As Nevsky has put his men into their battle formation and set up his dispositions, the Germans have reached Lake Pepys and they've crossed it at its narrowest point, and they are preparing to meet Nevsky's force in battle. As they line up, whoever's in charge, whether it's Bishop Dorpat or someone else, it's clear that uh, the man in charge understands the only way for them to win is to really tear apart the Russian line with the strongest, most effective fighting men that he has. That would be his Teutonic knights, these are the heavily armed and armored classic knights and men-at-arms, as well as uh, they have the additional remnants of the that sword brethren group that was destroyed earlier. Uh, on his left-hand side, uh, or his left flank, northern flank, is a group of Danish warriors. And on the southern flank, uh, or the right flank of his line, he's got a group of German settler knights, Both of these would have been uh, solid forces. They would have been uh, extremely well-made and and ready to fight, but probably not as effective or elite as the Teutonic Knights. Uh, And then behind all of this is a large formation of Estonian militia. And the Estonian militia are the group of conscripted, almost compelled, compulsory soldiers who don't want to be there they don't want to be fighting this war and they certainly don't want to be fighting it for Teutonic Knights again the formation is set up with an understanding that not only is the best chance going to be to break the Russians with the Teutonic Knights but that to put too much uh too much responsibility of victory on these Estonians would be unwise so they're left in the rear as a rear guard um and the hope is that all that they're going to have to do is support victory. So once the Russians start to break, the Estonians will flood into the gaps and start to help out that way. Uh, the, the hope is, or the goal is, to form up the Teutonic Knights into a boar snout charge. And this is a formation that was widely used at the time, uh, very successful. It is exactly what it sounds like. It's a triangle with a blunt tip, And the hope is that the horses and weight and speed of a charging group of knights with that kind of formation could create just enough of a a, a bulge and a salient in the enemy's uh, straight line that you could eventually cut your way to the back of it. And then once you've split that line, you can turn on either side and collapse each line independently and really cut it up. The Teutonic Knights and the Crusader Cavalry charge home in that boar snout and they go all along the line, charge headlong into the Novgorod militia. Uh, Maybe it's possible, we're not 100% sure, but it's possible that they were ordered to try and capture or kill Alexander Nevsky himself, and this might explain why they went so hard into the center and why they really had no plan outside of just a full-on frontal center attack. Uh, and they do successfully drive that wedge. that They create that salient. They, they drive really, really deeply into the Russian infantry line. Um, for a moment, it might even seem like it's going to break. Uh, they're able to just collapse the center of the Russian line. And, and keep in mind, this is where you're going to see a lot of the most violent melee fighting. Um, this is where you're going to see... Unarmored militia men with you know little more than axes and and spears and wooden sticks, trying to take on fully armed and armored Teutonic knights who are wearing you know upwards of a hundred pounds of of steel uh, and are just hammering away with massive swords and axes and maces. Uh, this is the part of the battle where you're going to see true, true mayhem, and uh, the Russians suffer a, a large amount of casualties. Considering that they may outnumber the crusading army five, maybe even six to one, um, they are able to uh, weather those casualties a little bit better, be, better because of the fact that they have so much, uh, uh, so much of a preponderance in numbers. But uh, the Teutonic crashing boar snout attack does in fact have the desired effect it does drive the russians back in the center and it's killing them uh their infantry at an at a, a worrisome rate so as this is all happening and the melee in the center is just turning into a charnel house of of gore and blood the Russian cavalry to the north on, its, on, on Nevsky's right wing, made up of, of those Turkic Mongol horse archers, they swing around in a big swooping formation and attack the Danish cavalry on that, uh, on that left flank of the bishops. So the Crusader cavalry doesn't see this coming. They weren't expecting or anticipating this. And all of a sudden, they are just getting hammered by Mongol... Tactics which they are not familiar with at this point. uh, Mongols are are very new uh, to the Europeans. Their their tactics, their abilities, are are unheard of um, and something that not many men would have experienced and survived. And so, for these Danes to all of a sudden just get sheaths and sheaths of of arrows raining down on them, Uh, and for these these quick small little Russian horse archers to be moving in and out and in and out um, and striking with such speed and accuracy. The Danes, in the very unenviable position of trying to hold back these swarming, swooping, firing uh, Mongol horse archers or Turko-Mongol h- horse archers, are, are unable to keep them back. And, and they don't get any uh, help from those Estonian auxiliaries in the rear uh, so the rear guard is playing no part in this, um, and eventually the Danes are forced into flight because they just can't keep the horse archers off of themselves. As soon as that happens, what, what now is is clear is that the, the left flank of the Crusader army disappears, and the center, those Teutonic knights who have already put themselves in that position of being at the very forefront of the attack, are now at the mercy of a much greater number of Russians that huge difference in numbers really plays a role here because once their left flank is gone the the Teutonic Knights and the melee fighters in the middle be quickly become surrounded by Russian uh, Russian soldiers and though they're outnumbered the Teutonic Knights have, a lot of fight left in them, and a lot of bitter fighting continues in this center. Even though they're outnumbered and encircled, uh, they continue to dish out death to the Novgorodian infantry and Nevsky's men. The Teutonic Knights had failed to get to Nevsky, uh, and it's clear that they can't win this battle, so their goal now is to try and break out and escape uh, ultimate death, uh, and they do a good job. They deliver a lot of, of crushing blows and they they take a lot of the enemy with them um, but they their chances of surviving and escaping are dwindling by the moment on the left flank the russians are able to stop the crusader right flank under bishop herman and that really seals the fate of that center force Uh, And then it's at that point that the Russian infantry and Nevsky's druzina, who has been left in the rear as kind of a um, a kind of freewheeling force, so uh, Nevsky leaves his druzina behind them. They're a little bit more mobile, and he's waiting for the right moment to use them, and that's right now. He uses those druzina to fully envelop the Crusaders in the center, uh, and then the mass killing of the Teutonic knights and the men at arms begins. The Danish contingent that is breaking under those Turkish-Mongol cavalry attacks, uh, they take on extremely heavy losses, and because of their lack of support from the Estonians in their rear, uh, they're forced to just break for it and retreat, uh, and they try and escape the battlefield as best they can, splitting up in multiple different directions, trying to just make, uh, you know, all speed towards safety. The Estonian auxiliaries, that huge clump of Estonian infantry, again, those guys didn't want to be there in the first place, but uh, they were there to try and help support whether uh, whatever part of the Crusader army was either getting any success or whatever part was under heaviest attack. The Estonians were supposed to step in and help out. Instead, they do exactly the opposite. They hardly took any real... Uh, part in the battle and as soon as they see that the center of the crusader line is encircled and suffering the and they also recognize the full size of the russian force which might have been hidden by alexander nevsky his disposition might have been in a way that kind of concealed some of his numbers um, and it might have been difficult to see over some of the frost heaves and in the reed bed so it, it might be that Nevsky was playing a little coy there and able to disguise his full numbers. And once they are fully established and uh, in, in a attack mode, the Estonians see that they are pretty much helpless and go into full flight. Uh, they're the first to really turn and flee the battlefield at this point. So the Danes held on for a little bit longer. The Estonians were the first ones to just say, screw it, we're out of here. Uh, and they make all all due speed for uh, the safety of the marshes behind on the other side of the lake. Uh, the Crusader wing goes into full retreat uh, and joins up with the Estonian auxiliaries as they're fleeing to the, to the rear. Um, neither one of these groups tries to stop and form up any kind of rear guard action or anything like that. It's every man for themselves. Uh, the Teutonic Knights in the center, they're surrounded, they're screwed, and nobody really thinks to try and salvage the moment or the situation and go back and cut them out or try and draw some of the heat off of them uh, at this point, it is uh, a lost cause for the crusading force. As the crusading units collapse and begin to flee, uh, Russian forces from both wings, so both your turco mongol and your Druzina, start to chase the fleeing crusader forces across the ice. And this is where, according to some accounts, much, much later than the battle itself, say that some of the uh, men were falling through the the ice and drowning, and some of them cracked through the ice. Most of the accounts, though, say that the pursuit didn't really take them past the the reed beds outside of the lake, um, and that the marshes along the western shore of the lake were. Pretty much safety for the Crusaders. If you got that far, you'd be okay. Um, And that the ice in many places probably wasn't deep enough for a man and horse to disappear beneath. Uh, The uh, remnants of the center of the Crusader attack that group of Teutonic Knights and heavily armed men and the Sword Brethren, those guys are pretty much massacred. Um, there's a small breakout of the envelopment by the Russians uh after they suffer some seriously heavy casualties and this includes the loss of of twenty of those elite knights of the sword brethren um, so a few of these guys a few of these knights and men at arms are able to break out and cut their way out of the encirclement and make it to safety but the the majority of them would die at Russian hands. The outcome of the battle was pretty much set up before the battle happened. Nevsky's disposition and formation was, uh, was brilliant in terms of how he used the terrain and his understanding of his enemy. Um, the fact that he was way, way larger in terms of the size of his force compared to the Germans absolutely helped, uh, and... So, the outcome, although not a world shattering casualty list, was still very high for such a small battle um, that was fairly quick. Uh, you would have had according to different sources, you had six Teutonic knights captured uh, or and forty four German and Danish men at arms, and you had as maybe twenty dead um, of the elite Teutonic knights. Uh, 400 to 500 crusaders died in total. Um, So that's a very, very high amount of the force involved if they had between 1,000 and 2,000. If they had only 1,000 men, you're talking almost 50% of them killed in battle. Um, The high casualties on both sides were part of that whole crusader charge to the center and their ability to really cut their way deep into the Russian lines. But ultimately, the Crusader forces losing forty-five percent of their fighting um, fighting men really puts it uh, put it strongly in the um, into a resounding defeat for the Crusaders. The legacy of the battle is interesting in a number of different ways. So you have Alexander Nevsky, who, um, interestingly enough, orders his men to stop chasing the enemy. Uh, fairly quickly, so they could only chase them to the other side of the lake, and then they were supposed to let up. Um, the reason he did this is because he's trying to create a lasting peace. Uh, he understands that if he totally annihilates th- this army here, uh, he's just going to get more crusading armies coming after it. Uh, Better to try and make a uh, a peace and give terms and try and work something out than to have constant fighting uh, on his western border. This is definitely um, one of those examples of his his really brilliant understanding of politics uh, and strategy. Uh, He gives the very favorable terms to the crusader states saying, Basically, give us any prisoners that you have, we'll give you ours, and any territory that you've taken, withdraw from, and we'll withdraw from the territory we've taken. So in that one instance, he wins back the uh, fortress city of Eisborg, um and Skov, and then he's able to also get them to pull out of any of the territory that um, they had taken along the way, and that way Nevsky doesn't have to fight to take it all back, which is... Uh, again, really intelligent politicking right there. He recognized also that the Teutonics, uh, Teutonic Knights were, were stretched thin and on their back foot in this fight. He really didn't have to fight that many of them, and the ones that he did really did a number on his army. So, to uh, to avoid having to fight a large number of them, peace is a better op, uh, you know, avenue. With uh, the Battle of the river Neva and the battle of Lake Pepys. These victories really help build Nevsky as a true Russian hero. And he he becomes this, uh, this massive figure in medieval Russia. It eventually leads to him being venerated by the Orthodox church and becoming a saint. Even though in both cases, the battles were, uh, you know, they were more l- more local affairs than they were, like, titanic global or even really national struggles. Um, but, I mean, it, to the point that one chronicler says in 1240, the year of Neva, and 1242, the year of Lake Pepys, that uh, when recording what happened that year, he said, of these years, uh, quote, nothing happened, end quote. So either a very... Uh, Ill-informed chronicler or someone who uh, didn't regard these particular battles as very important. Either way, it's it's not so much how important they were in the moment as the fact that they built Nevsky's reputation and prestige, and then also what they went down in history to be remembered as by the Russian people. Um, he was uh, uh, Nevsky was rewarded for uh, the. His loyalty to the Mongols And eventually was given the title Of Grand Prince by them in 1252 Uh, In November of 1263 on the way Back from the capital Of the Mongols uh, of the Golden Horde Nevsky falls ill And dies Uh, One priest uh, When uh, hearing that Nevsky has Died one priest in Novgorod Finds out while he's saying mass And he turns around to his congregants And says quote The son of the Russian land has set my children, end quote. Um, This uh, this really is a a high watermark in Russian uh, medieval history because Nevsky and and his success with Novgorod and their relationship really starts the long process of uh, Russian consolidation of power and eventually leads to the nation of Russia being built all the way down to the ruling czars and... Kind of creates the state of Russia, and kind of creates the state of Russia as 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 history knows it from uh, the 1200s right down until the the 1800s. So uh, Nevsky's lasting effect on Russian history and and the world history is is pretty high in terms of. Um, of, of the mark he left. However, it's I think it's more a political mark uh, and a cultural mark than it is a military one. Um, both battles, Neva and, and Pepys being fairly, um, fairly small affairs. The Teutonic Order uh, wasn't really seriously weakened by the battle as there were only a few knights that took part in the fighting. Uh, and so the master of the order wasn't even there uh, and didn't fight in the battle uh, but it did shake the prestige of the order in general in the area. And so once the uh, news gets back to the Baltic region and especially Prussia, there was a, a downgrading in, um, in recruitment, you know, the fall in recruitment. And also you have a, a battle, uh, or shortly after the battle, the Prussians under the Teutonic order rebel. And they rebel against their Teutonic lords for seven years. And this is important because it comes off the heels of, of the absolute annihilation of Teutonic Knights at the Battle of Legnitz, which is a huge disaster. Uh, it's where the Teutonic Knights first met the Mongols and were um, and slapped around. Uh, So between that and then like Pippus, the Prussians see an opportunity, they see their masters weakening, and they go ahead and rebel for seven years before they are uh, put back into, uh, or, you know, brought to heel. And the failure of the Teutonic Knights here, obviously numbers, um, there there was a very small number of them, and which is... uh, The failure of the Crusaders here is that they weren't able to bring enough Teutonic knights to the battle. If they had more, it's likely that they would have broken the Russian line. Um, The few that they did have were, in fact, in the process of doing that. Uh, But it exposes some larger uh, issues in the Teutonic order's understanding of their eastern uh, neighbors, because not only does it show that they have a complete lack of understanding and underestimation for the Russian military capabilities and leadership, but they also have a complete and clear lack of knowledge on how to deal with the uh, lightly mounted horse archer uh, of the Mongol army, of the Russian steppe, and that would go on to plague them and would eventually be responsible for, in large part, why you uh, start to see a scaling back of massive knights uh, in cavalry charges and, and that, that kind of thing. So um, so Lake Peppers plays, plays a little bit of a role in the decline and fall of the Teutonic Order, but not immediately so. The Baltic region... Absolutely responds positively in some cases to Lake Pepys. Some of the conquered peoples began to question their new masters, uh, and they rebel against the, um, the the overlords. So you see the Estonians rebelling against the Danes. You start to saw see that in small part at the battle itself. Um, the whole affair kind of shows that the Pope is is very weak in the region. He's really unable to combine and channel the different interests of the various kingdoms of Europe and the principalities of, of the Baltics into like one controlled concerted plan. Um, and they're not ever as famous or well known or supplied as the Middle Eastern Crusades. The Baltic Crusade was far more successful. Uh, To this day, most of the the countries in the region identify as either Catholic or Protestant Um, Most of those countries are also, uh, they have a high proportion of observant uh, followers of those religions So interestingly enough, the Baltic campaigns or the the Baltic Crusades Have a a much longer lasting effect on the region that they took part in Than did the, the Middle Eastern ones And Bishop Tartu uh, was convinced to focus on converting Baltic lands from here on out and protect Christian Livonia while leaving Russia to kind of do its own thing, which that in and of itself plays a role in Russian history, because if you had strong crusading nations uh, constantly pecking at these Russian principalities, eventually they would start to play a role in uh, in. In weakening all that. Instead, Tartu and the Crusaders focus on their own little uh, Baltic states and the Russians are allowed to grow and evolve on their own, including Novgorod the Great. Um, the new Pope, Innocent the Fourth now tries to, uh, after the, the defeat of Lake Pepys, the new poor Pope decides to try and win the Orthodox city over. Um, he wants to garner some Russian uh, diplomatic uh, uh successes he wants to use Russia as a bulwark against the Mongols and indeed against the Muslims that way he will be guarding central and western Europe against these uh, these invading foes it also became clear after the battle that the city of Novgorod needed a permanent nez or prince uh, and they grudgingly asked Nevsky to uh, to become the first one Uh, And he uh, he actually makes it so that they prosper under his rule. He's a good leader. He's a smart politician, as I said. uh, And Novgorod does does very well under him. Um, They're able to further consolidate that uh, critical Arctic uh, trade control. Uh, And in the uh, the, in the the north, they become quickly the the most powerful and and key trading city um, anywhere in northern Russia and now to what I think is the most important legacy of the Battle of Lake Pepys, the Battle on the Ice. Uh, It's the enduring cultural effect that that battle has had on on modern 20th and and 21st century history. Uh, You have in 1938 the epic film Alexander Nevsky made by Sergei Eisenstein. Uh, it's It's a propaganda film commissioned by the state. Uh, commissioned by Joseph Stalin himself. Uh, and it's made by Eisenstein, who, who earlier had directed the movie The Battleship Potemkin, one of the most famous uh, communist movies of all time and, and really one of the first, like, hugely important artistic movies ever made. Uh, and he's, it, it cements Eisenstein as an early voice of, uh, of the people in communist art. He develops this thing called uh, the montage of attraction, is what he calls it, uh, and it creates emotions in the audience by cutting together strikingly opposite images. Uh, he really is considered an early genius of film, and and he's co- essentially commissioned by the state to make uh, the bio picture on Alexander Nevsky. Uh, he's forced to take on state-mandated crew members. Uh, he's got to have... Story and script editors that are okayed by the the Communist Party, even the coaches for his actors have to be uh, approved by the state. And his lead acting coach is a uh, like a diehard Communist member. The other thing is that is surprising about it is that uh, for most of his career, Eisenstein preferred to take just average people and tell their story. And so his actors were very common looking and and fairly normal. Um, But in this particular instance, the state wanted a very handsome matinee idol type actor to play the role of Nevsky. And so that's what they got him. Uh, Interestingly enough, the movie is a, it was formed, it was filmed shot in the summertime. The film is, Interesting in how they made it because uh, all the vegetation and grass of the Russian summer steppe was painted white and covered in uh, you know white substance. The ice chunks in the lake at this point were uh, were used or they used gas balloons to keep them in place because uh, they couldn't use actual ice. Um, the whole ice debacle. Of, of men falling through and drowning and dying as they they collapse um, through the ice really doesn't have anything to do with anything Eisenstein read about the battle it comes more from his reading of uh, Milton's Paradise Lost where Satan and his devils are, are thrown down into the pits of hell according to Eisenstein uh, that's where he got the imagery for most of the battle Uh, The movie today is considered less of a uh, brilliant masterpiece as it was at the time um, for a long time, up until about the mid-'90s. Both people in the East and West thought it was a a brilliant movie. Um, I've watched it twice now. I think it's very good. I think it's a cold, uh, authoritarian production for sure. There's not much soul. There's not much, interestingly, for a communist movie, there's not much about the people. Uh, You don't get much emotional feeling of the masses but uh it definitely symbolizes the the centuries long struggle between Russia and her enemies of of the strength of the Russian people against invaders and the ability for Russia to always uh come out on top you definitely get that in spades um but it it definitely doesn't really tell you about the the working masses very much, or it doesn't convey the peasants' feelings or emotions very much. But if you're interested, definitely watch it. You can watch it for free on YouTube. It's on Amazon if you want to buy it, um, but I suggest just watching it on YouTube. It's long. Um, it can be a bit of a slog in points, but one thing that is enduring and fantastic is Prokovev did the score for it. Um, it's blood-stirring. It's, it's an actual real ode to Russia and to the beauty of Russia and the the strength of its people in in the countryside. Um, So it's it's interesting, uh, it's fantastic, and the music's absolutely stunning and beautiful. So if you do watch it, definitely listen for that. Uh, one of the things also to keep in mind is that Stalin wanted this movie to remind the Russian people that they fought off the Germans before and could do it again. However, it came out in 1938, so it came out right before the uh, the German-Russian non-aggression pact. Uh, so it's interesting because you have Stalin who knows that war would eventually come sometime down the road and that the people needed to be prepared But he was also planning on making a deal and cutting, you know, Poland up with the assistance of Hitler. So when eventually Barbarossa happens and the Germans invade, uh, the movie is re-released because it had been pulled during the whole non-aggression pact for that two-ish years you have uh you have Alexander Nevsky not being played in theaters because Stalin and the communists didn't want to offend any Germans uh who might take uh, umbrage with the fact that there's a movie being played where the Russians beat the Germans well once the barbarossa attack happens and the Germans starts slaughtering Russians left and right the movie gets rolled out again and is widely screened all over the country at Stalin's request to really highlight the success of Russian heroes against German evil, uh, and uh, and it definitely played a role. Some of the best propaganda artwork that I've seen from World War II is uh, looking up while researching this episode, uh, some of the propaganda artwork is absolutely stunning. It's it's um, chilling, It's it definitely gets your engines revved, especially, I can assume, if you're a young Russian soldier on the way to the front in 1942. Um, in a kind of... And the Battle on the Ice even has a little lasting legacy within our current modern-day pop culture. Uh, if any of you watched the final seasons of Game of Thrones, I'm sure some of you will remember the episode where the, uh, the heroes, on their search to pull back a dead walker, uh, back down to show Queen Cersei... Uh, they travel up north and at one point they get caught on an island and they're surrounded by the army of the dead and they are fighting on the ice and using the ice to break it up and crash the enemy into the ice icy water below and all that. I can't help but believe that some of that uh, that story and some of that art direction and, and whatnot was in some ways influenced by the battle on the ice and... If any of you like Star Wars, it's uh, well-known that George Lucas, the grand thief of cinema who has stolen from everyone, but in a good way, um, used the helmet design for the Teutonic Knights in Eisenstein's Alexander Nevsky biopic to create the helmet design for Darth Vader and the Stormtroopers. So every time you see Darth Vader or any of the Stormtroopers, You're looking at uh, kind of an offshoot of Russian history there. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I definitely am intrigued to get some feedback. So if you feel like it, rate, review, subscribe, DM me, or send me any kind of messages on social media. I did not use a script for this episode. I'm sure that you guys will notice, um, but I'm trying to streamline this whole process and make it so that I can get content out much easier and quicker. If you think that you want me to go back to scripting it, just let me know, send me a message, and uh, I'll see what the feedback says. Um, As always, we are on Patreon. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So check us out at any of those social media sites for further information, cool events, maps, images, all sorts of stuff like that. We do a live stream at 8 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Um, and we're doing some. We're starting to dip our toe into live watches and watch parties, uh, so definitely stick around, and check out some of that stuff on Instagram. Up next, we have a massive battle from World War II in the Italian Peninsula, one of the most bloody and tough battles that the Allies had to fight against the Nazis. And this one's going to be a little bit more of our traditional type episodes. We are covering the Battle of Monte Cassino.